0: Okay, so before I talk to you about if and how we might control the climate, I want to talk to you a little bit about why we might want to. Um, So some of you might have seen this article or similar ones a few weeks ago. Um, So on the 10th of May, we passed a really important, significant threshold for, for humanity in our interaction with the environment, which was carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere going above 400 parts per million which in crude terms essentially means that for a million molecules of air, there's 400 carbon dioxide atoms or molecules essentially in them. Um, so the last time we were above 400 parts per million in the air of carbon dioxide was at least 3 million years ago, back in an era, an epoch called the Pliocene era, which temperatures were on average across the globe, at least two or three degrees higher than they are today. And sea levels were a massive 25 meters higher than they are today. So to give that a bit of context, that means that nearly all of the Netherlands, most of Florida and large parts of East Anglia would all be completely underwater. So what does this mean really in terms of warming? So um, this is from the the last IPCC report, which is the, the big body that produces a report on our latest physics understanding of what's happening with the climate and climate change every seven years. So these colored curves on the right hand side are different projections for what might happen under different future emission scenarios with red being high emissions of CO2, green being medium, blue, low and and yellow, none at all in the future. Um, So the scary thing I really want to get across from this is that the CO2 pathway on, the rate that we're emitting CO2 at the moment, is on a rate that's even in excess of what was used to calculate the red curve. So we really are heading for a world that's by 2100 at least three or four degrees warmer than we are today on average, which is, which is a lot. Um, no one really knows what's going to happen to the planet at that stage. It's quite far out of our comfort zone at the moment. So it's really not a place where we want to be. And even after two decades of climate negotiations and treaties such as the Kyoto protocol, we've really made no progress at all in, in getting our CO2 trajectory down to a sustainable level. So what can we really do about this? Well, Essentially, there's three main options that we've got. One, which is obviously the ideal solution, is to agree a global deal on carbon dioxide emissions and and cap to stabilize and then eventually bring down the concentrations in the atmosphere. As we've talked about already, um, that looks less and less likely, unfortunately. Number two is do nothing, just live with a warmer world and somehow adapt to living in this this warmer world. Three or four degrees is a lot warmer. Um, We can't really say much about what that world's going to be like, but what we can say is that to live in it and to adapt to it will require a big change in our society and a lot of suffering for a lot of people. So it's not really somewhere where I think we want to be. Is there another option? Well, some people say there is. Number three, geoengineering. So what even is that? So I've kind of given a loose definition here, which is essentially this. It's just intentionally intervening in the climate system to try and offset the warming that we've created with the carbon dioxide and and balance out that temperature increase. Can we do this? What does it really mean? Is it safe? These are some of the questions that I'm gonna spend the rest of the talk talking about and giving you a little bit of background on. So what even is geoengineering? Well, in essence, there are two real big strands of different geoengineering projects. This is one of them. They're called carbon dioxide removal projects, which, as you can probably guess, does exactly what it says on the tin they are ideas that take carbon dioxide and pull it out of the air and get it back in the earth somehow. So there are a fair share of, you know, more exotic ideas about how to do this. Some of the more interesting ones, I think, include things such as artificial trees, which are are creations that people are building that scrub the air 1,000 times more efficiently than natural trees from CO2. Or there are other ones that involve biological methods to fix carbon and draw it down from the atmosphere and then bury it in glacial formations. This would be great, it'd be fantastic. If we could do this, we should definitely do it. There's no negative consequences to this that we know of. Unfortunately, some of these ideas are quite undeveloped. We don't really know if they're going to work at large scales to make an impact. And unfortunately, they look like they're going to be very, very costly. But there is another, maybe more feasible way of controlling the climate. And these are methods called solar radiation management methods, which is a bit jargony, but essentially it means that They're ways of reflecting more sunlight away from the Earth to cool it down. We all know that the sun has a warming effect, right? If you hold out your arm on a sunny day, you can feel the top of your arm feels distinctly warmer than the bottom where the light's hitting it. And essentially, these methods would cool the Earth by reflecting a bit more of that sunlight away from the Earth's surface and not letting it heat the planet. And hopefully this would somehow balance out and offset the, the, the warming effect of the carbon dioxide we put in the air. Um, so there are a few few exotic methods of doing this um, as well. Um, I think my favorite is definitely the idea of um, building these massive space mirrors and like shooting them up into the orbit around the earth which will then literally reflect large amounts of sunlight away from the earth which is um, pretty science fiction as you go but um, there are other much more doable methods of this. Um, One particular one is the one I've got on the slide here which are maybe through a tethered balloon like we've got here, um, inject certain kinds of particles into into the stratosphere, which through the physics of how they interact with the sunlight will do that reflection away from the Earth themselves. And the really interesting thing about this is that compared to the cost of changing our society so we're not so dependent on emitting CO2, the costs of doing a method such as this to cool the Earth down are a tiny fraction of that. And it is very doable. This is something that we should definitely be aware of and want to investigate the consequences of further. So even with these possible ideas that might be feasible might not be feasible would it even work in the real world. Well there's a couple of ways of knowing what works in the real world for the climate and what doesn't. Um, One of those ways is to look at the observation record. So we've got the history of what's happened with the climate and look for any parallels that we see um, and see how the climate responded in those situations. The other one is to is to construct models of the climate using the best understanding of the physics of how the climate system works that we have today and use those as a prediction tool. Um, So for these kind of particles that we might want to put in the air there is a really actually fantastic parallel which are volcanoes. This is a photo of the Mount Pinatubo eruption which happened near the Philippines in 1991 and it was one of the big eruptions of the 20th century. As you can see in the photo, when these huge volcanoes go up, they send a huge amount of dust and debris into the the higher atmosphere. And some of these particles, particularly sulfur dioxide, are exactly the particles we might be interested in seeing how the climate system responds to. So what does it do? Well, this is a figure showing that climate record through the 20th century. The black line is the observed record, so what actually happened. And I've marked the locations in time of the, the four big eruptions that happened in the 20th century. You can see Pinatubo on the end there in 1991. And what's really interesting is if you look at the black line after each of those eruptions, there's a definitely a significant and noticeable dip in the global average temperature following each one. It's lasting for maybe a decade, maybe half a decade. And that's essentially, it's these particles that reflect the sunlight being spread all over the Earth by the winds and, and reflecting the sunlight, which is not having its cooling effect on the ground and on the climate. The red line is, uh, are the models. So climate models are inherently uncertain things, that's absolutely true. But um, they, for instance, they consist of solving approximately 500,000 coupled equations at the same time. But they are our best and only tool for really understanding the physics of the climate. As you can see, the red line follows the black relatively nicely and responds in pretty much the same way actually after each eruption. And the yellow kind of gives you an idea of the model spread. Yeah, it's good. And for a lot of people who are interested in geoengineering, this is quite a positive result. You know, it gives you some hope that maybe this is some way we can control the climate. But we don't quite all live in the global mean. So this is uh, a certain climate model model simulation of if we didn't do any geoengineering, just kept on emitting carbon dioxide at the same rate as we're doing now, what the world would be like or what the difference in the temperatures in 2100 to the start of the 20th century would be. And it looks pretty bad. On the right, we've got the precipitation. but contrast it to these figures, which is the same model under geoengineering scenarios. And I think what's really interesting, what I really wanna focus you guys onto on these maps is it's not at all uniform. So as you can see, there's, there's some warming around the poles represented by the yellow colors on the left and some cooling actually in the mid-latitudes. Um, and I mean, what matters for us in the UK is gonna be what happens to UK temperatures and UK precipitation patterns. So it's absolutely integral that we improve our understanding of the physics and the processes that govern geoengineering and the climate enough to be able to really answer these questions. In particular, on the right-hand map, which is rainfall, uh, you can see that a geoengineering scenario would give you a drought, potentially, over South America and Africa of one millimetre a day of rainfall. And just to put that in context, across a year, that's pretty much equivalent to us in the UK losing one third of our total annual rainfall. So that's a big amount. There's a lot of people who depend on that rainfall for their livelihood and their agriculture and so on. That's not the only other concern with geoengineering. Um, One potential big concern is how do we stop it? So if you turn it off, um, as this simulation shows uh, by the dotted line, um, when we turn off geoengineering suddenly, say if we had some undesirable consequence that we found was happening and we wanted to stop it right now, we warm very very fast. You can see here the dotted line um, at least the geoengineering scenario we get a rise of you know a couple of degrees in um, a couple of decades which is a massive amount for nature's biology and ecosystems. It's very hard for them to adapt to that. Um, one maybe extreme example I'm just going to give you is turtles. So some turtles incubate their eggs at very specific temperatures and the temperatures that the eggs are incubated at really governs the, the sex of the, the turtles that come out of the eggs. And in some even a change of one degrees can make all the, the new turtles male or female. And I can't think of much that's harder to adapt to than a whole generation of turtles being male or female exclusively for nature. So I think the moral of this is if we're going to engineer, we need an exit strategy from it. So to sum up, I don't think geoengineering should come across as a, a silver bullet to all our climate problems. It's certainly not. It's not some magic escape rope. But it is a useful tool in our arsenal. Some people make a very good argument that in some ways are we not just solving one uncontrolled climate experiment, i.e. putting CO2 into the air with another one, geoengineering. And maybe that's a very valid point. Um, But we do need to research these these consequences and potential implications of ever doing so because it's certainly something that's out there in the early 50s actually the first ever report that was given to the US president on climate change by the National Academy of Sciences in America solely mentioned geoengineering as a solution to climate change. They didn't once mention cutting out CO2 um, which I think is very worrying. I think geoengineering should research should definitely not take away from that motive to cut CO2 for a, a lot of reasons I think this cartoon really sums up. There are a load of benefits of moving to a sustainable and more ecological society that we'd be missing out on. But it's really important that despite that we don't we need to investigate the consequences of of the physics of geoengineering and the social implications of what happens because unfortunately we may one day be in a situation where we might need it. So thank you very much. Uh, Happy to answer any questions.